Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I'm Rachel Marshall with Bruce Weiner here this morning. And today we are having a conversation about the state of the life insurance industry. Now, the reason that we want to have this conversation with you is that you probably, if you've been following us for some time, you know that we talk about life insurance and specifically whole life insurance on a regular basis as this place to be able to store cash and have the best safety, liquidity, and growth. But we want to also be understanding to the dynamics and the economic factors all around us. And especially on your mind right now might be all of the economic concerns related to the pandemic. So we want to be able to get inside of your mind and answer the questions that you have that are on your radar and be able to really help you understand how to navigate these questions. So maybe you're wondering how strong is the life insurance industry really what impacts are today's low interest rate and low dividend rate and low bond yield environment? What factors do those have long-term on life insurance and the growth rates and the policy guarantees, which you as a policy owner are leaning on to have your financial confidence, especially if this is a cornerstone of your financial plan. Now, how is the life insurance industry as a whole weathering this economic storm or this economic turmoil that we're in right now? And do insurance companies have enough reserves to be able to weather those low yields and the low returns that they're getting inside of their own company and also potentially higher death claims related to a pandemic? Are they able to maintain their guarantees? Is this still the best place to store my reserves? So that's what we're going to be talking about today, answering all of those questions. We have several things that we are going to be bringing up and bringing to light in this conversation today, and I hope you'll ask some questions. And if you have questions, please feel free to go ahead and put those into the chat on the live on Facebook or YouTube. If you're catching this afterwards, you can send us an email at hello at themoneyadvantage.com. We'd love to be able to include your questions and your thoughts in future episodes. So Bruce, good morning. Good morning, Rachel. Boy, that was a, that was a wonderful introduction. It, it, it brings in a lot of things in the topic. And, um, you know, it's, you always have to build a foundation. And so a lot of our podcast listener, listeners have reached out to us um, and to me specifically on some meetings. And I'm just amazed at how many people actually listen over and over and over and are getting value for this. And this is exactly why you and I try to do this on a very consistent uh, basis is so that we just, we, we help people navigate all the noise out there that uh, the internet, it's a wonderful thing and social media is a wonderful thing, but there is a lot of noise out there. And um, in our, uh, our political climate now, they're talking about free speech. And I just saw today where, you know, there's, there's uh, accusations of, you know, Zuckerberg and Twitter, you know, um, censoring uh, certain political parties going back and forth. And, you know, really the, that's all that's okay because it's a private organization in my mind I mean they can do whatever they want privately it's you know we don't even understand the difference between uh, free speech is one thing um, but you but uh, free speech also comes with responsibility oh, um, when you do that and that's what people keep forgetting about 
So today, when we talk about these different issues, I'm going to throw in some uh, other things to try to get some background to why you have to know this knowledge. And it's not just about life insurance companies. It's about general monetary policy. Mm. And I think a lot of people will uh, benefit from that. And so the last thing I'd like to say before we get started is the gratitude of everybody listening that we want to make sure they understand that we really are thankful for everybody listening. Bruce, I really appreciate that you shared that. And I think sometimes um, we don't know who's all listening right now. And if you are one of them, please feel free to reach out. Let us know what your thoughts are on the shows that we have and what questions you have on your mind that you would like us to address. So let's talk today about, I mean, Bruce, we're going to, we can go all over with this conversation, but I think one of the biggest things that is probably on people's minds, if you realize that life insurance growth is based on the investments that the life insurance company holds and their growth is generally following the bond yields or the bond market. The bond market is generally pegged to interest rates. And we look at today, we're in a really low interest rate environment. I mean, I think that can be one big concern saying, well, what does that mean for my long-term growth? And especially what happens if interest rates continue to stay low going into the future? I mean, nobody has a crystal ball. We don't know. Are they going to stay low? No one can answer that for sure. But the Fed has continued to keep those interest rates pressed down at this time. So what does that mean for the long-term growth of the life insurance? And then I think there can be this other question too. And I know we're, we strive to not be overly political on this show because there's people of all different um, persuasions, I should say, that listen and can gain tremendous benefit from the show. And we don't want to be isolating to anyone or alienating to any one way of thinking politically. But we have seen a lot lower death rate with COVID than expected. But especially in the early days, we were thinking that it was going to be a lot higher death rate, which then you've got to think, well, if you're in the life insurance industry, you're doing this actuarial science, you're thinking about how many people statistically are going to die within a certain window of time. And does a pandemic then influence that death rate to be higher than expected and than planned for? What does that mean for mortality claims that the insurance companies are then having to pay out? And if something like that happens, are they getting a lower growth? And are they having to pay out more in death claims? And what does that mean for their overall general stability? And I think really what this comes down to is... I mean, we're not necessarily that interested in what happens inside the life insurance industry as consumers, right? We're really interested in what happens with us. And I need to know, though, as a consumer, and you, if you're listening, I need to know, are the decisions that I'm making for the purpose of having the most stability, the most confidence, the most safety to navigate this financial times, these financial times, are the decisions that I'm making, are they Am I leaning on something reliable? Is what I'm putting my confidence in, is it something that's sound? And I think that's kind of at the core if we really had to kind of uh, percolate up these feelings that we all have specifically about life insurance right now. That's kind of what's behind some of them. And I think our goal is to not only help you to put language and verbalize what those tensions or or questions may be on your mind, but also to answer them and give you some solid ground to really be able to understand the context. So, I mean, Bruce, we can kind of take this wherever you want, but I think we could start with even just interest rates and what that means and what the bond market yeah. means. Yeah. 
So what I thought I would what I thought I would start with when we started discussing this episode was the fact that um, the United States, even though um, historically we've always gone through um, what's called the business cycle, and that's uh, uh, where we actually have really good growth, and then we have corrections, and then we have really good growth, and then we have corrections. The business cycle is is, is accepted. Um, by the entire economic community that it's going to happen. And if you look at the Federal Reserve, you're going to see a contraction uh, of two consecutive quarters, which is, constitutes a, a recession, happens almost every 10 years. And so um, uh, that's just – and the reason I bring that up is to, is to actually squelch a little bit of people's uneasiness uh, about things. Now, I'm going to bring some um, – hopefully some positivity in this, in, in that the United States, one of the reasons that we have been a, a bastion of economic growth in, in the entire history of our country, I went to a, a conference several years ago, and it was explained to me geographically why we are in better position than almost any other country in the world, because we have actually, on three sides of us, we have major oceans the Atlantic Ocean, the Gulf of Mexico, and then the Pacific Ocean. So we, have, we can actually get goods and services all over the globe very easily from mm-hmm. that. Then we have waterways throughout the entire United States, the two major ones being the Mississippi and the Missouri River, but also the Ohio River, that we can move goods and services very easily throughout our vast continent um, on the waterways. And then we have a rail system that was developed in the 1800s that we can move goods and services. And then the Great Lakes system actually can combine the waterways and the railways to move goods and services. On top of that, we have very good relationships with both Canada and Mexico. Now, you might be saying, well, we don't have great trade relationship with Mexico because, you know, we were going through all this. NAFTA stuff and so on and so forth. That's not what I mean. We have very good, um, calm, conservative, uh, political relationships with them. We don't have to, in other words, we don't have to worry about Canada invading us. We don't have to worry about Mexico invading us. And that has happened basically over our entire 250 uh, plus years of being in existence. Now, I, I didn't want to turn this into a history lesson, but I think this is really important for people to understand why the United States is in, a, in the best uh, possible position of all the countries in the world and why we, have, why we actually have thrived over our time period is because of our geographical location and our long stability of not having the, the stress of, you know, somebody going to invade us or bomb us. Where you see this in the Middle East, you see this in Russia. Mm-hmm. You see this in the African countries. You see the turmoil in the South American companies, the Far East with China and North Korea always in turmoil, Pakistan in turmoil. All these turmoil things actually thwart the growth economically. So I, I'm telling this to people to actually hopefully make them feel better about not only uh, the position of life insurance companies, but the position of our economy overall going forward. Well, Bruce, that was uh, definitely um, unexpected, but I think really valuable just in terms of thinking. I mean, you mentioned the 250-year chunk of time. I mean, that's talking, that's really long in terms of a 
historical trajectory of strength. And then something else really interesting, and maybe you want to connect these ideas together, but you mentioned as well these the business cycle that we typically see every, uh, I think you said oh, 10 years, every 10 years, mm-hmm. there's usually two quarters of being down. Um, and what I, what was really interesting about that is if you put those timelines, so the 10 year timeline, this cycle that kind of repeats and repeats and repeats over those t- each 10 years. And then you think about the 250 years of strength and you think about those two time frames. Then let's lay in the life insurance companies where most of the strong, stable, mutual companies that we talk about and do business with have been in existence since, I don't know, when, Bruce? The, the early um, 18... Oh, well, well, over 100 years. So 100 to 150 years. Yes. And we think... So what I'm, what I'm wanting to do with those timelines is then think if the life insurance companies, we know for sure over 100 years and and more in many cases, if they've been in existence that long, they've seen the business cycle ups and downs. And we're talking about insurance companies that do business in the United States. We're not talking about any other countries. And that is definitely life insurance is an industry that is localized. There are many other countries that have life insurance offerings, but they don't have them in the same way, or they have different types of products. And so we're not speaking to any um, life insurance companies outside of the US at this time. But when we look at the U.S. 250 years, we look at life insurance companies, at least 100 plus years of that, we look at this business cycle, we know that life insurance companies have weathered business cycles before, and not only business cycles, but they've weathered big things like wars and the Great Depression, and they've been around through really, really hard times in the past. And we've talked previously on the podcast about about some of the things that happened during that time. And then we also know that they may not have foreseen COVID. They may not have foreseen 2020 and all of the craziness that has ensued and happened this year that just seems like it's layered upon layered upon layered of all these things that would would be completely unexpected. And yet at the same time, because they have that really long time horizon, I think they're really what positioned really well to be able to weather this short-term dip. I mean, this is not, 2020 is not going to last for the next 80 years. I mean, if you just look at the, the trajectory, we're going to have somehow we're going to come out of this. Yes. So let's talk about, let's talk about what some of the insurance we're as uh, people may or may not know, we are actually brokers. So we're not beholden to any one insurance company. So we use a couple of insurance companies, one a, a lot for a variety of reasons, but we, we do use other insurance companies. And at the time of the pandemic happened in, in March, most of the insurance companies actually put a hold on some new business for a short period of time. And when I say a short period of time, I'm talking seven to 14 days where they just said, we're not going to take any new more applications until we actually have a handle on this. So that was one of the things they did. Um, They then, uh, after that, they said, we're going to open it back up or we're going to have more stringent requirements for anybody over age 65. Now, why? Because if you've been following the pandemic, the most of the deaths, uh, the the deaths were from people over age sixty-five. Mm-hmm. Now, the other interesting thing that they, um, I think, is important uh, to understand is most of the deaths. And when we say most, we're talking. I don't have the exact figures, but you can look it up at the CDC website. And I've actually done most of that have what are called comorbidities, or they already mm-hmm. have some 
problems with uh, their bodies, um, whether it be diabetes, overweight, uh, cancers, heart already problems. have some respiratory heart problems, so on and so forth. So those people, um, and I know this sounds cold and callous, but those people were probably not going to live much longer anyway. Now, and if you, you layer that over on top of what the life insurance company does, so they have underwriting requirements and they have people that they decline for life insurance. There's people that they say the likelihood of you dying within this window is so high that we will not insure you. Or there's also people that they would rate them or cause the insurance cost to go up for that death benefit amount. But what you're saying, Bruce, is if they were going to die anyway, they wouldn't have been insurable. No, that, yeah, yes, that is a good point that you're bringing up, but that's not exactly where I was going with this. Okay, I was go going with this that if, if those people were already insurable earlier and on the books for the life insurance company, the life insurance company would have already rated them to say, oh, well, they, they would probably have died at this time, but they died maybe several, you know, two, three, four, five years earlier than they thought. That's not enough to move the needle on the reserves. Uh, I talked. Uh, yes. I talked to the gen, the um, the uh, head underwriter at Lafayette Life and the vice president of marketing and life at Lafayette Life, and then I talked to regional people at Penn Mutual that are actually in our office building, and they were both uh, saying the same thing: is that yes, um, do we have to look at it on our books? Yes, but we already figured that most of those people that died a little early. Uh, actuarially, they were, their life was only going to be extended maybe three to five years anyway. So it's not going, I mean, we're talking life insurance companies that have hundreds of millions and billions of dollars on the books. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of people think, well, even if they, were, they, even if they paid out a, a million dollar death claim three years earlier, it's not going to move the reserve needle that much. So I just wanted to bring that up to um, have people understand from a, uh, from new or business that was already on the books. Now, the second thing I'd like to bring um, up is that, yes, Rachel, you're right. They look at things in a, in a long term, especially mutual companies look at things in a long term. Stock companies, which demutualize a lot in the 80s and 90s, they actually have to make a report to their stockholders every 90 days. And so to maintain their jobs, <laughs> to maintain, maintain their position, they often have to take short-term or make short-term decisions to make sure the stock price stays up, which is one of the reasons why stocks in general, not just insurance stock companies, but stocks in general are volatile because they're always trying to manipulate things every 90 days for the stockholder report. Um, that's for a whole new episode. But, ins but mutual insurance companies are not beholden to any stockholders. They're only beholden to the uh, policyholders because that's what it means. You're mutually uh, owner in that particular company. So they don't look at things in a 10-year, 20-year, 30-year, or even a 90-day. They're looking at things in a 100-year uh, situation. Mm -hmm. So they can be much more stable. Example, um, the top mutual companies, the, the top 12 companies uh, that are mutual have on average $107 for every $100 that they have um, promised in death benefits. So they have $7 more than what's promised in cash reserves. So you can and see what, that even ahead. a little bit of a change there, um, they can actually weather that storm. 
uh, one of the companies that we use the most actually has $114 in reserve. So they have mm -hmm. double the capital requirements um, of the top 12 companies. Now, you might want to say to yourself, talking to the little man in your head, well, why are they so much different? Well, they are run by Western and Southern Life, which, is, which holds the mutual holding co uh, company of Lafayette Life. And John Barrett, the CEO, president of Western and Southern Life, I've talked to personally, and he said, Bruce, we believe we are in tough economic times. He's talking about all the way back since 2008. And he mm -hmm. says, I want to be holding cash so that when there's buying opportunities, I can buy at the basement and thus get a better return for my um, mutual uh, uh, Lafayette Life uh, policy owners. So that's why he's been sitting on cash, where a lot of the companies are actually still buying bonds that are basically not returning anything in the first place. So let's talk a little bit, Rachel. Let me stop there. And then if you want to add some things, then I'm going to go into how bonds work. Yes. And I think that understanding how bonds work and their connection to the life insurance industry is extremely critical. And so, so I think the whole reason we're answering any of these questions is what does it mean for you, the consumer? So if you're thinking, I really want to make sure that if I'm going to do life insurance, for the purpose of having access to my capital that's growing at a rate that's bigger, faster, a higher rate of return than banks, and I'm using my capital for my own banking system, and I'm using the privatized banking concept, so I'm not just letting my cash sit in the cash value, but I'm using it when the right opportunities come to play, you're essentially doing what the life insurance company is doing, you're holding a lot of reserves, and then when there's buying opportunities because the costs are low, you have the cash to jump on those opportunities. Now you're doing all those things and you're also having this death benefit. So not only do you have the cash reserves and you're using this for a banking function, you also have the, the death benefit that's going to pay out when you pass away. That's a tremendously valuable product to you. And then if you're saying, well, what about the internal working of the life insurance industry as a whole? How can I make sure that I can trust them even in hard times? And if you think about the life insurance perspective, then we're about to go into the bonds, which has to do with where the life insurance company is investing their dollars. Because where the life insurance company invests their dollars is going to produce the return that comes over to you as the consumer, as the policy holder, in the form of your interest, your guaranteed interest growth, and your dividends, which are not guaranteed, but again, highly anticipated. So what that means is if the insurance company is investing well over long periods of time and maintaining high capital reserves inside of the company, then they're in a position of financial strength, which means they're able to follow through on their guarantees to you. So that's where all of this is connected and why we're even talking about the reserve ratio and the reserve requirement, the way that it connects to you and why it matters is that that makes you realize that they are poised to make great investment decisions. And they're also poised to be able to pay out death claims to you. And they're not in a a position where they're riding on that brink and they're concerned about default or they're they're worried about the the next quarter or they're worried about the next year because they're in a long range view. So Bruce, I think what would be really valuable is to talk about 
interest and how that connects over to bonds. And um, I would love to hear you explain it first and then I can kind of recap from there as well. I honestly, bonds for me, I know that the interest rates right now are very low. The bond yields are very low and interest or in the growth in life insurance really follows the bond yields or the bond market. What's interesting, I did a lot of deep dive this week before this show just because I really wanted to understand what's happening with bonds. So it's going to be really interesting to hear your explanation and then hopefully I'll be able to share my recap on that and make sense of it all. Yeah, well, first of all, I think that you have to understand that um, most people think they understand a stock offering. So a stock offering is what they call an equity offering. So um, a company goes public, they decide that they want to sell shares of stock in the company so that they can get an infusion of cash into the company. And that is called an an IPO. So they put it out and they sell it um, with a broker and they get an infusion of cash. Once that happens, you own the share um, you don't really own any part of that actual company technically. What you're, you're, you have now is a share of that. Um, I shouldn't say you own a share of that company, but you have no say-so on what the company does and no guarantees of what the company does. So that if the company does You're kind of along for the ride. Yeah, you're along for the ride. If you want now, you, you can sell that share to somebody else at whatever price you can get it from in the open markets. It's free market. But when you sell it, the company doesn't get the increased difference or the decreased difference. They don't have to pay the decreased difference. It's in the open market. A lot of people don't understand that. So like if you bought Apple at 100 and sold it for $120, Apple doesn't get the extra $20 for their business. Um, but you get the extra twenty dollars. Right. Okay. So that's I think that's an important distinction. So that's an equity position. A bond position is a debt instrument. So what you're basically have a promissory note that if you give me a certain amount in lots of one thousand, if you give me a thousand dollars, I am going to actually pay you a interest rate along the the term of that bond, whether it's a a three-month bond, a nine-month bond, a 12-month bond, a five-year bond, a 10-year, always a 30-year bond. And they can be done by our treasury department. And basically, um, we have full faith that it's going to get paid back by the United States government. Why? Because the United States government has taxing authority for these treasury uh, bonds. So that if they don't have the money to pay them back, in 10 years, they just will raise taxes and gather more money to pay back the bonds. Now, we don't have time to go into all that because, you know, just raising taxes or have the Federal Reserve just lend them more money by actually selling more bonds because that's what the Federal Reserve can actually does sometimes when they talk about uh, um, paying off debt. They actually just sell more bonds to, to pay off the previous bonds. Um, Which then you have to believe the people who buy the new bonds to pay for the old bonds have to believe that the government will back will eventually. The yes, and that's that's the big thing going on right now because people say, when does it stop? When do people lose faith in this system? And once again, that's not enough for time for this particular absolutely <laughs> giant so concept. It, so what it what what insurance companies do to make money is they take all the premiums in. 
every month and they go out into the bond market, anywhere between 75 and 95% of their portfolio is going to be in the bond market. Only a little bit of that portfolio is not in the bond market. And it could be treasury bonds, it could be corporate bonds, it could be municipal bonds. And just to tell you the difference, the corporate, seen, oh, pardon me? From everything that I've seen, usually they're in the ballpark of like 40% in corporate bonds, which mm -hmm. is not the same as treasury bonds. But go ahead. Right. You wanted to explain the three types. Well, and the, 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 all these get ratings by rating companies. And the corporate, you know, how, are, how likely are they to, to pay these back? And obviously, the stronger the corporate position, the more assets they actually owe. Because technically, if they don't, if they, if they can't pay their, if they can't pay their uh, bond back at the end of the term, then they have to sell assets to pay off those things. No different than if you go to get a mortgage and you can't make your mortgage payment, you got to sell your house to pay the mortgage payment. Mm -hmm. uh, municipal bonds are the same way. So it's a municipality. A municipality, um, uh, how likely are they to pay them back? So you have a $1,000, and this is, the, this is the concept I want people to understand. Mm -hmm. So you have a $1,000 bond paying 3%. And um, now it's a and it's a um, it's out in the free market. Now interest rates go down because we're actually pumping more and more money into the system. Now you go out and buy that same ten-year uh, bond, um, and but the interest rates are only two percent. So your bond that you bought for three percent actually goes up in value because you could go out in the open market and say, well, you can only buy one at two percent now. So let's, I'll sell you mine at 3%. So now your $1,000 bond, you could get maybe more than 1,000. You might get 1,010, 1,020, 1,030, something like that, 1,100. So just to recap that, if the interest rate from now to the future goes down, new bonds have a lower interest rate attached to them, which means the price of existing bonds goes up. So that's interest rate now going down, price of existing bonds going up. That's an inverse relationship. Now, that's exactly right. And, and the, the, interest, the inverse also works. So let's say you bought a 10-year treasury now. And let's say it's at 0.62%. And then interest rates actually tick back up in the future. And, and just to let everybody know, that's what interest rates have historically done. They go up, they go down, they go up, they go down, they go up, they go down. Um, and they go up in the future. Now you have a 10-year treasury that's paying 1.5%. And you're sitting on it two years from now, you still have eight years on this 10-year treasury only paying 0.62%. So now you're like, oh man, I wish I could buy that 1.5% one, one. So you say, hey, who wants my 0.62% out in the open market? And people, people are gonna say, well, I won't give you $1,000 for it, but I'll give you 900. Mm -hmm. and, and you, and, you say, well, why would you do that? Well, take that $100 loss. There's going to be a break-even conversion point where now you can actually take the 900 buy the 1.5% and actually have a greater yield. So that's what you have to do uh, as a consumer to see what it, where is that break-even point. Now, in order to do that, though, most of the time you're going to have to take a short-term loss or why even do it? You know, mm -hmm. the break even. Why do it if you're going to break even? So people say, well, I want to take a short-term um, loss on this whole thing. So what ends up happening in all this is that any individual consumer holding a bond 
is actually in this fluctuation constantly. Life insurance companies don't have that same problem because they have new premium that comes in every month. So they can look at it and say, well, I can actually hold this bond, not sell it at a discount. Just hold on to it. So I'm not going to lose any money, even though there's lower interest rates. And as the interest rates rise, they can say, oh, well, now I'm going to buy it at the new interest rate with my new influx of money. I don't have to sell my old interest rate bonds and lose money to buy the new interest rate bonds. So That's a really good explanation, Bruce, yes. because what's ultimately happening is what's called bond laddering, right? Yes, exactly. They're buying these giant, really long-term bonds. And as they mature, then they'll buy new ones. But the new money is purchasing new bonds at whatever the new current market rate is. So they have, I mean, if you looked at the way I kind of envision it is if you had a bunch of ladders and you stacked them all at different um, levels, and then whenever the end of one ladder ends, you have a new one starting, what's happening is you're never dumping all your bonds all at once and getting all new bonds. You're always consistently buying new ones and having old ones mature, meaning, I mean, I don't know how long of bonds, the corporate bonds are that insurance companies are purchasing. Do you know it, how it, long? It depends. It depends. It can be anywhere from, once again, it can be a, from a year to 20 years. Um, but let's just say they have a bond that they bought 20 years ago that's maturing today and a bond they bought, you know, 18 years ago that's going to mature in two years and they have another bond that they bought 10 years ago that's going to mature in 10 years. They're not concerned with this blip on the radar of exactly. 2020. It's like they have this bridge of trusses so firmly across all of this giant span of time that we have this downturn that affects us all because we're looking short term and we live in the today and they're looking so far into the future because of their ability to do what they're doing with always buying new bonds and always having old bonds maturing. And Bruce, I don't know if I jumped way too no, far that's ahead of you. No, that's perfect. That's perfect explanation. Uh, so and now let's think about treasury bonds because they're backed by the United States or the safest types of bonds because they can always just print more money. Now we might be debasing our currency and it's not worth as much, but they're going to get paid for. It, okay. Right. So they're the safest corporate bonds. Um, are not as safe, but they're still safe. Um, and the rating system goes, but because they're not as safe, you can actually get a higher uh, interest rate on corporate bonds. But you're not gonna get something that's way out of whack because what, the corporate bond knows they only have to beat the treasury bonds. That's all they have to, that's all they have to beat. Um, so that is, that is something that, uh, another concept that people have to know about is that um, dividend yields are based upon mostly the interest yield of bonds. So let's just think about this. If the way they pay dividends is, is that they have expenses to run the company, your company, because you're a mutual holder, so it's your company. What are those expenses? They have actuarial expenses to design the products. They have underwriting expenses to see if you're worthy of the product. They have home office expenses to service the product. They have a home office real estate. They might have regional real estate. They have um, agents or producers like us that they have to pay to actually present the products. So they have all those kind of expenses. 
Then they have these um, ways to make money to invest in these bonds. And then they, um, they, they simply add up. This is the revenue we made this year. These are the expenses. And they have a profit. Mm-hmm. Now, as you stated earlier, these companies have been in business, the ones we use, anywhere from 115 to 178 years. So they have always had a profit over that entire time period. Now, and they've paid a dividend. Now, how they pay a dividend? They take the profit, they take some of that profit, and they put it into more reserves to protect the policyholders. Mm-hmm. Then they take the profit and they declare a, this is a really important concept to understand. They, re, they uh, declare a gross dividend for the entire pool of policyholders. Which is in the form of a percentage. Percentage. But that percentage is a gross percentage. Mm-hmm. It's not, it doesn't take into uh, effect any kind of fees that come out to place these products, so on and so forth. And not everybody in that pool gets the same percentage. And people are always confused by this. So if, if a company declares a, I don't care if they declare a 6.2 dividend or a 5.2 dividend, not everybody in the pool is going to get that dividend. Some are going to get less, some are going to get more. And right away, I can hear people screaming at the video or the podcast, wait a minute, that's not fair. Well, it is fair because all these policies endow, and that means they're all going to come to a place at year 100, or year 121 by contract that if you live that long, they're going to pay by contract an amount of money. So the actuaries know how to get there. So and that they, the reason that you had 100 or 120, that's all set up in advance. When you put the policy in place, you know if your policy endows exactly. at age 100 or 120. We're not saying it's an arbitrary number between those. We're saying it is that year. It's just that they've changed the now the products. policies. Yeah are mostly coming to age 121 and the amount of money they pay out to you is the death benefit, which is equal to the cash value at that time. So if they know they have to get to a number and a 10 year old is putting so much money a year into a policy and a 60 year old is putting so much money into a policy and they both have to get to the number at 121, the time value of money is greater for the 10 year old because it's going to, if they have, they have uh, 50 more years for that money to grow to get to that particular, to, to mm-hmm. get to that particular uh, number actuarially. <clears throat> so they pay that 10 year old, a, a smaller percentage of the declared dividend, which would be less than 6.2 or 5.2 or whatever the, the number is. And the 60 year old, they're going to pay a greater amount of that dividend. It might be, they might uh, give you a 7.5% or an 8% dividend that year. I've seen as high as 20% dividends on that year. And people think they're getting a 20%, the, uh, the company has declared a 20% dividend. No, they, they've just averaged out that dividend. Now, that's also the, just mm-hmm. if you're listening, we're going to be deep diving on dividends in a future episode. So if you have questions specifically about that, we would love to hear them. You can again email those questions, you can pop those into the comments if you're listening live on Facebook or on YouTube. But we are going to be digging into dividends more specifically in a whole episode. So this is not that section for today, this is not that topic. But I, I think that's a really great um, viewpoint and perspective, Bruce, that you're sharing there. Yeah, I just think uh, people need to understand that um, life insurance companies understand that the bond market is so st- stable and they control 
not only their expenses so well that they, when I say stable, I don't mean um, stable as far as they don't go up and down, but they can predict them uh, actuarially enough that say, we can just hold on to this so we know what's going to happen in the next 30 years with this bond or next 20 years with this bond because we can hold on to it. Where an individual can't necessarily hold on to it because they may need more income in their life or they may have a need for capital in their life. So they have to sometimes sell their bonds at discounts mm-hmm. where an insurance company doesn't have to do that unless it's in their best interest. And they're going, and that's where the uh, chief investment officer is looking at those kind of things. So that's well, basically think- how the dividends work and, and why the company is so, they're so confident, although they cannot say guaranteed, mm-hmm. they're so confident that they're going to be able to hit their dividend scale to some extent. Now, as dividends have been pushing down, um, yes, they haven't, they haven't hit them perfectly, but they've still hit them at a really high percentage of what they predicted. You know, I think that you may feel, if you're listening, that we have um, opened this giant can of worms and we're talking about all these concepts that are connected but how do they all tie together? So we're going to try to tie them all together in the last five minutes of this airing, this episode, this live today. So if we look at generally the interest rate environment, you can pull up a chart if you want. You can go to macrotrends.net and you can look at the um, historical history chart of interest rates over time. And um, I, I can even um, share it on the screen right now. Let me see if I can do this. So you can look at interest rates over time. Bruce, tell me if you're seeing this just because yes, we can see it. Yes. Okay. So if you look over time from in this last 62 year history, we've got here all the way down about where they are today, back in the 1950s, a giant spike in interest rates here towards like 18% and back down to where they are today, very, very low. So you look at this big sweep, obviously we're in a low interest rate environment and that's something that is an undeniable. You can look at various pieces of the interest rate environment. You can say really what we're mainly looking at is that's the federal funds rate, which is where banks are borrowing and loaning money to each other and that's controlling the money supply. Whereas when the interest rates are low, there's more money available. Then when you look at bond yields, what's interesting to me is you think, well, if interest rates are down right now, again, we don't have a crystal ball to know what's going to happen in the future, but if interest rates are down and have been kind of on this downward trend since the 1980s, and how does that relate over to bonds? Well, bonds, again, we have, if interest goes down, the price goes up. That's confusing. But when the price goes up, the yield on that particular bond goes down. That's another opposite relationship. And so Generally, when you think interest rates come down, bond yields or the rate of return that you're getting on bonds is generally coming down as well. And you can also look, there is a very similar chart for bonds. If you go to macrotrends.net, you can see a very similar chart. And this is a 54-year history, so not exactly the same. Let me just share my screen real briefly again here. Bruce, let me know if you can see it. Yes. Okay. So <clears throat> this is then bond yields, a 54-year historical chart. Again, this is 
the 10-year treasury rate. This is not corporate, this is not municipal bonds, but this is the 10-year treasury rate and bonds looking like we have a low environment here in terms of those yields. Now, what's interesting to note as well, again, is that we'll cite this particular article because it was a really, really great one. There is an article called The State of the Life Insurance Industry is Good, written by John T. McPhee. This was in July 20th in July uh, the 23rd of 2020, so this current year. And he kind of talks through a lot of these similar concepts that we're sharing today, and we'll link the article in the show notes as well. But what he said is extremely true and particularly relevant is that if you look at the overall trend of the bond market, insurance companies have been navigating a lowering and falling bond environment for the last 20 years. This isn't yeah, well, actually for the last 40 years. Well, yeah. 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 Since <laughs> yeah. There we go. So much longer even. So a long time they've been working in a falling bond environment and still over that time frame, have still been <clears throat> a place to store cash that earns you better than savings account, checking account and money market and CD rate of return and has a stability and a safety that you know that your money is going to be there for you. And we have a whole episode that we did on life insurance ratings as well and what happens if a life insurance company does actually go under and what happens to your money. So we're going to link over to to that particular article and podcast that we did previously. But then it's also a place where, so you're getting the growth, you're getting the safety, you also have liquidity, you have access to your cash value. And what's really interesting about this whole thing is that in this environment, life insurance is still a wonderful place to store cash, specifically for taking control of your financial life and being in a position where your reserves are still working for you. They're not completely sitting on the sidelines, just hoping that that someday you'll be able to put them back into commission and earn a return. You're in a powerful position where you're holding cash and you have strength and financial strength because now you're poised like the insurance companies with that capital to take advantage of deals when they go on sale. So Bruce, I don't know if there's anything else that you would like yeah, the to only, Yeah, I just like to wrap up the fact that um, uh, this is a play, this is a, I've been doing this uh, personally because my mother and father took out a policy on, on me when in 1963. I've been doing it actively since about 1987 or 88 um, when I took out my first whole life policy. And, you know, people look at this, um, although we are really big with the death benefit mm-hmm. because we, but people look, this should be looked at as a financial tool that will replace a place to store your capital that's better than the banks. And that's why a lot of people are rushing to this concept because they're like, I don't get any respect from the banks anymore. Why? Because the banks don't have to, because uh, they can actually get capital from the Federal Reserve if they need. The second thing is, is that um, it's a really good bond replacement. Why is a good a good bond replacement in your portfolio? Well, after a time period throughout the internal rate of return of these policies, you're going to look at you're going to look for something in the neighborhood of three and a half to. I always say 4.25%. There are some occasions where you can get higher than that. I've heard uh, other producers on videos that say, oh, you can get five, five and a half percent. 
those are extreme cases that I'm not comfortable saying, but a heck, even three and a half to 4.25% are better than bond yields. Why, are, why can they be better? Because you're not holding the individual bonds. The insurance company is holding the individual bonds. So the, 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 the two things that I think I want to wrap up the episode is, is this is a place to store capital that's better than the banks and better than holding individual bonds. Um, in my opinion, because in holding individual bonds, you are subjective to interest rate risk. And that's for another topic, again, going down the road. But I really appreciate this. I think there's a lot of people that are um, stressing about the pandemic, and uh, rightfully so. But I do, uh, that's why I started this out with hope, talking about the positioning of the United States and why everybody always looks at the United States and what are we doing. And one of the reasons we have a, geo, a geographical advantage, not even talking about the ingenuity and regulatory uh, environment that we also hold true because of the freedoms that we have um, and the vast diversity of thought process that we have in the United States. So I think, uh, I hope people appreciate this episode and, and um, I hope they uh, continue to be safe out there and, um, and uh, this pandemic ends fairly soon. Absolutely, Bruce. I think that was the that was beautiful. I have no additional contribution. That is the best way that we could end the show. So in closing, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.